On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. Welcome back to the Ackerman Year. It's part two. I'm joined as always. Uh, my name is Simon Howell, I should say. Joined by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. And this month, we have a special guest. Uh, would our special guest like to introduce themselves? Hi, so my name is Erin Nanota, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto. And I work, I guess, like broadly on queer theory and aesthetics of loneliness and... I'm really excited to be discussing these films. Yay! I saw, I saw, I met Aaron, well, met, I, I encountered Aaron very briefly at a conference, uh, maybe six, seven months ago now, and um, she gave a really wonderful paper on a film by Ackerman, and I was like, I want this person to be on the podcast, and Aaron very nicely agreed to come on and, uh, and talk with us, which was wonderful. Before we go any further, just a, a couple of quick bit of housekeeping notes. Uh, there was a bit of a delay in getting the show on Apple Podcasts. By delay, I mean... It was Apple's fault, not mine. Um, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, it's there now. If you want to rate and review us uh, and get us above the other teeming masses of Chantal Ackerman podcasts, we would really appreciate that. The other housekeeping is actually just uh, more of us talking about Chantal Ackerman because uh, we're going to start things off in this set of films uh, largely themed around, I believe we're going with uh, queer relations, queer relationality, specifically among women, uh, which we will get to. Uh, however... We meant to talk about a little film that she made in 1986. In our first episode, the film is called La Paresse, or Sloth, also known as Portrait d'une Paresseuse, Portrait of a Slothful Woman. It was made as part of an anthology film called Seven Women, Seven Sins. As a sidebar for this whole episode, just uh, put a flag on uh, modes of production that don't really exist in the same way anymore. Uh, anthology, especially the the anthology and the various forms that can take. Anyway, just make a note of that. Uh, but we meant to talk about this film in the first episode. Uh, we're we're going to talk about it quickly now before we segue into the film it most naturally pairs with, which is actually her first feature, Je suis Hilel, uh, which we will get to in a second. But uh, Kate, what? Why? I mean, our our first episode was, uh, I guess, themed around uh, in interiors. Uh, and domestic spaces. And here we have uh, Ackerman herself in an interior. This is further along from her uh, from her early films. Obviously, we're, we're into the mid 80s. Uh, what new tricks has she picked up here? It's funny that you uh, mentioned this question of chronological order or non-chronological order, because I realized making my notes for this episode, that it is actually a little more challenging to think about comparing Ackerman's films across multiple time periods, because I think it, it allows us to bring out some really interesting thematic concerns, which is why we designed the podcast this way to deal with sort of groups of films. But then it introduces all of these questions about sort of like Ackerman as an artist or what has happened in all of the intervening years. And it's difficult to keep my head in place for all of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. So we'll, that will probably be a theme we'll keep talking about. But the um, 
Yeah, the question of a leperess. I mean, A, I should say Simon was very kind saying that we just sort of ran out of time last time to talk about it. I had forgotten that we were supposed to watch it for our last episode. So um, now here, having watched it, um, the question of, yeah, new tricks. I mean, it's interesting. I think the thing that stuck out to me most maybe had less to do with sort of um, stylistic developments. Uh, although I, I do think you can kind of sense a bit more of a kind of relaxed tone or something in uh, in Leperes compared to Ackerman's earlier films where she's performing herself and that's her in a room. Um, so there's that. But then I think also uh, just maybe sort of some like thematic concerns that are, that are not there so much in the early ones, particularly having to do with this idea of laziness. And I think, uh, an aspect of that that will kind of echo throughout Ackerman's career has to do with these sort of questions of like, I mean, resistance is maybe a bit of a strong way to talk about laziness for her, but I think just this idea of, um, yeah, what it means to not conform, what it means to not kind of go along with the pressure to be productive, to be this sort of normal figure, which comes up in all of her work in various ways. And here, I think, you know, she's sort of pointing out these questions of like, Laziness, slothfulness is sort of like almost the inevitable product, actually, of this kind of like sense of needing to be productive. And this is this is a theme for her in her whole career. She's she's often quite concerned with this idea that she's supposed to be productive, but she doesn't feel like she's productive or she feels like her her body or herself won't conform to the urge to be productive. And, you know, here you have the comparison with her partner, Sonia Weider Atherton, who's a cellist, who we'll have time to talk about again as well throughout um, the podcast, playing and sort of doing her work and practicing well Ackerman is struggling to kind of do anything right. And the joke is, of course, that she's actually doing a lot of things in these like very condensed, very funny ways. She takes her vitamins all at once. So she has sort of 10 pills and one glass of water, um, you know, in order to get out of bed. She has conveniently dressed herself apparently the night before, so she doesn't have to do it in the morning. I mean, all of the, again, these kind of odd things that she's doing. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I have some thoughts about this film, but it's it's a bit of a just sort of a light treat, this movie. It's not, it's not sort of like one of her kind of deeper investigations. But what did you guys make of it? I was thinking about like the question, like specifically of having her partner in this film, because like her presence is felt in a, like a lot of the other ones, like from this period. But I'm trying to think of how many of them like she actually appears on screen in. Um, uh, Sony Weider, Sony Weider, Atherton. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and that there's. I don't know that one way of thinking about it might be like an introduction to these like questions of lesbian presence versus absence and like the transparency of that queer relationality, which I think is going to come up in like all of these films to varying degrees. Um, and that's not what it's about per se, but even like the question of productivity and like what it means, like, to be, I don't know, like an individual or like a, a contributing member of society and how that's bound up with heterosexual reproduction and production. So yeah, no, absolutely. I had not thought about those things at all. And actually, you're pointing out to me that I think someone just casually watching this film who doesn't know who Sonia Weider Atherton is may not even get that they're meant to be romantic partners, right? I mean, it's not exactly obvious in the film and the way it's structured. Um, like, for example, Simon, I, I'm not sure how much you knew about that already with with um, Atherton as her partner. So what was your read on that material? Just sort of by ambient suggestion from other Phil, I just sort of assumed it was her partner. Uh, but I, I will say there's a, a few noteworthy sort of firsts here um, as, as, as long as... And, in the order of films that we are talking about, I mean, uh, I love chronological time. 
is that uh, this is the first instance of Ackerman working from a prompt. Uh, yeah. We, in, mm. in terms of you know that clearly she's she's used this prompt to make another very personal film, which is not the uh, last time that's going to happen on this podcast. But uh, just an interesting note that uh, then for a few of these films, she's uh, working from she's working within some kind of framework. And here it's the the I don't know whether she got to draw straws on which sin she got or how that worked exactly. <laughs> um, it, it, but clearly this was the nat this was one very natural fit. Uh, we'll, we'll have more talk of constraints and uh, and the joys of constraints uh, when we talk about some of the other films. But yes, I was I was thinking about uh, how between these films and La Paresse is, is certainly is certainly one of them here. Uh, you, I feel like at this point in the viewing on the if if people at home are viewing along with us, you're kind of really getting a uh, at least the broad outline of a person especially by the time we're done talking about these films today, I feel like we each film really builds sort of a, at least a suggestion of a, of a kind of persona, which I find uh, really fascinating to watch develop and possibly be contradicted in future months. Yeah, it's true. And again, this was not, I, I didn't certainly didn't plan it this way when I had picked these to go together. But again, we have a week of very heavily autobiographical films, right? Whether we either actually have Ackerman in the image as a performer, which is the case here, and then in uh, Je Tuelel, or uh, in the other films, Je Femme, Je Foie, and particularly Portrait of a Young Girl at the end of the 1960s, um, that one is heavily autobiographical, I think. Although again, it's always a question with Ackerman. She's never doing that in a really straightforward or really obvious way. But um, but as Simon says, I think it does, it's, it inevitably creates a really interesting sort of set of questions as you move over the decades here. We're moving from the 70s through the 80s to the 90s to think about how Ackerman's kind of strategies of self-presentation are shifting. Um, her, yeah, strategies of presentation of like relationality um, for her and other people, her thinking about kind of identity and how that relates to questions of re relationality, um, which I don't know, we probably can start talking about G2LL anytime we want, because I think these are these are just as present there. But um but yeah, I mean, I think just to wrap up Leperes, you know, Ackerman is like adorable in it. <laughs> she always is. You just, you're just like, yes, I enjoy watching you on screen so much. That's all I, that's my deep take on uh, <laughs> Portrait of Curses. The last thing I have to say about Leperes is that um, it's, it's interesting how we don't watch. Um, you were talking about how it's not obvious that uh, Sonia is, is is the partner. And the reason that's not obvious to someone who doesn't know anything about Ackerman is that you don't really watch them interact. You exactly. watch Ackerman watching her perform, as we so often see Ackerman as the spectator in or out of the frame. Um, but we don't actually see them directly interact. And yet there is something about how uh, Ackerman's sort of bouts of laziness or slothfulness or depression or whatever it is. Uh, are scored by her partner's music. You were talking about presence. Uh, that was the interaction that I spent the most time thinking about, um, especially on like subsequent post first viewings. Yeah, indeed. And, um, you know, I, again, to sort of echo with um, Aaron's points about the film and sort of these questions of, of yeah, stepping outside the kind of norms of, of productivity. Um, I mean, one thing that I really love going back to the film and that I think Ackerman picks up again in later films in her career, I'm particularly thinking of the installation um, 
five women in Antwerp. Uh, I believe that's what it's called off the top of my head, where you have a series of women kind of spending time together and smoking, which also would make sense with our choices for this week, because we have a lot of women spending time together smoking. Um, but uh, as I mean, I think here, what's so enjoyable is that Ackerman, you know, she's, she's going through this kind of constant negotiation with herself, where she's saying things like, well, first I'll do this, and then I'll do that. So first I'll smoke a cigarette, and then I'll make the bed. And you know, whereas making the bed is sort of like the productive activity that's meant to kind of chime with some order of things, like a domestic order again. Instead, you have Ackerman kind of subverting that by showing us the minute where she sits and smokes the cigarettes while the music is playing. Um, you know, and the question, of course, is like, so who is, what are we being productive for, right? I mean, it, you know, what, in what order are we kind of living our lives here? What is, what are we serving? And I think Ackerman's sort of like service of indulgence, service of, of that, which isn't inherently productive according to certain orders is really gratifying. I mean, if nothing else, it's just really gratifying to watch. Yeah. Even in the context of this like seven minute short, she still sneaks some of her real time or whatever you want to call it in there just at the end as a little, little, little knuckle. Um, but, uh, it's, I guess speaking of, uh, films in which Chantal Ackerman spends a lot of time in a room and specifically in bed, uh, we should segue to, it's 1973, yes? I think 74 is the official release date, but I don't remember exactly when the productions happened. Yeah, Erin is nodding. Yeah, 74. No. <laughs> no <laughs> and then she's, she's still like, no, she don't, don't listen to her. <laughs> I don't want to be like the verification. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, we are getting in a time machine back to the early 70s. And Jesus was a sailor when he walked up on the water And he spent a long time watching from a lonely wooden tower And when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him He said, all men shall be sailors then until the sea shall free them but himself was broken long before uh so uh, kate do you, you want to do some scene setting here sure sure yeah i will I, I will, i'll do the the lay of the land and then i'm I'm actually really interested to hear uh whether this was your your guys's first encounter with uh, jetuel or when you had seen it before and what that was like um but uh but yeah so jetuel ackerman uh according to her own recollection she first wrote either the story or the screenplay in 1968. So she'd written it quite a bit earlier. That was the year she made Sotomaville, her first short film. Then, of course, she made uh, L'Enfant Aimé, which we talked about last week. It didn't go very well. Uh, and then she had kind of developed a little bit more. She had already gotten into touch with Delphine Serig, who would become the lead in um, Jean Dielman through, I think she met her at a film festival, actually. And I didn't get time to say this last week, and I just wanted to do the absolutely necessary shout out to Delphine Serig, who spent most of her career doing everything she could to support female filmmakers, to support young women filmmakers. She started her own uh, video collective dedicated to feminist filmmaking in France. She was a goddamn hero, and we don't talk about it enough. So just there you go. Delphine Seyreg, hooray. Um, and as evidence of that, she agreed to be in a film, uh, a feature film for Ackerman, based basically on like a loose script that Ackerman had written, which actually was not the script for Jean Dielman. It was a different script that was thrown out. Um, apparently, Ackerman rewrote the script and came up with Jean Dielman in something like three weeks, which is crazy. But anyway, so she had Delphine Seyreg on the hook and really and thought, knew that this was like an incredible opportunity. But in order to raise funding that would have been necessary to make a feature film with Seyreg, uh, thought that really what she needed 
to do was to make another feature film to prove to um, the Belgian film funders that they could give her money and she'd be responsible. So she, I guess, went back to a kind of short, this story that she'd written for J2LL earlier and co-wrote the screenplay for it with a fellow named um, Eric de Kuypers, de Kuypers. I'm not actually sure how you pronounce that name, but de Kuypers, uh, who she would work with off and on throughout her career. She co-wrote uh, two much later films with him and worked on a project that never came to fruition with him later that we can talk about later. But um, so yes, she co-wrote J2LL uh, and this was made in Europe. Uh, Babette Mongol was asked to shoot it, but couldn't. And they, they basically shot this film in a week. My understanding is they shot it over four or five days. It's, it's, yeah, it's quite something, um, made on a shoestring budget for no money. I don't think anybody on the crew got paid at least initially. Uh, hopefully somebody got some money later on, but, um, but yeah, so uh, we can dig into a little bit more about what what's happening. It's broken into three sections, but uh, maybe before we do that, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your guys' experiences with this film. Erin, I imagine probably not your first encounter with Jutui Dead. Uh, no, I've, I've seen it a couple of times before, and I actually um, showed part of it in a class I taught earlier this year. How did hopefully, that go? <laughs> well, hopefully the student isn't listening to this. Um, I, I will say, I'm not going to say their name. But they're like they're an incredibly brilliant, thoughtful person. Um, but they they send me this email where they're like, I just I thought this film was like so like not hot and like why are all lesbian <laughs> films like so like detached and not sexy? Um, and yeah. and I, I like I thought um, I, I don't know that it might be something worth bringing to the table in terms of how the film is representing sex or um, lesbian eroticism or the lack of eroticism. Um, so I, I just, I thought I would introduce that point. I'm definitely not mocking their comment. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, I have a story that chimes with that, but but let me, I just wanted to ask you though, was, was your sense, like when you first saw it, was it that you also felt kind of detached from it or you felt it was a bit of a detached portrayal of these things? I actually like don't have that response to it. Um, oh, I'm like I'm gonna have to think about that a bit. We'll we'll build um, up to it. I'm sure yeah. that, that's it's sort of the apex of the film. So we'll get there. But it's, uh, Simon, what were you gonna say? Really, of all the words you're gonna go with, you're gonna go with apex. Um, <laughs> the, um, I, it was my first time uh, seeing Je Tue um, yeah, I always f- found the prospect of watching it kind of daunting for reasons you can kind of imagine. It's it's really funny going from uh, La Paresse to here because I I feel like working in a in a diff- in a with with her constraints in La Paresse she she only gets a little bit of her uh, of her t- let's call it time work in there and here we rip- whipping right back to duration baby we have thirty thirty three minutes and counting uh, until Chantal leaves her flat. Uh, which is so which is maybe as the section of the film we should start by talking about as way of a kind of talking about sort of an overview of the film i can give my student story about jatulal which is yes but it was when i was a student um and uh and jerry white who i mentioned in the last podcast who had taught the francophone women cinema class that blew my mind and, and got me introduced to ackerman and who i know listens to this podcast so thank you jerry for listening um I have a distinct memory of Jatulal being the first film that I saw by Ackerman in that class. He showed it before uh, we watched Le, uh, Le Rendezvous d'Anna. And um, 
I just as a, you know, whatever I was, let's say 19 year old, maybe 20 was just absolutely baffled by it. Like I just could not make head nor tails of it. I had absolutely no idea what was going on. I could not, I I just didn't understand how I was supposed to engage with it, to be honest. But I I think this is such an important lesson and sort of like what great teaching is really, because I understood enough to understand that other people found this film really important. And I think, you know, I wanted to understand what they understood. And I remember kind of saying to Jerry in front of the class, uh why am I supposed to like this movie? <laughs> you know, to his credit, he was very patient in the response and said something, you know, he's kind of said, well, I mean, I think the film is doing some really interesting things with sort of moving between a kind of really severe dryness and then into this kind of like explosion in the latter half of it. And, you know, I mean, to, and then talked about how that sort of echoes across her career, which it does. But, um, you know, and maybe that was just enough for me to get my foot in the door with this film. I, I will say it, I have a bit more of a complicated relationship with J2LL than many of her other films. It doesn't sort of grab me in my soul the way that a lot of her other films do, which I think is simply a kind of effect of the fact that it is, it is a really conceptual film. It's very heady. It it really requires a lot of kind of, I think, intellectual work for the, particularly the first two sections. By the time you get to the third section, that is very different. And I, and I, maybe I can give just a bit of an overview of what these sections are that we're talking about. So the first section, Ackerman is in her flat. Um, as Simon says, it's an apartment. This section is kind of quite heavily influenced by uh, performance art. So here you kind of see Ackerman sort of drawing from a figure like Yvonne Rayner, who was a really important choreographer that Ackerman encountered in New York in the 1970s, part of this sort of minimalist inspired group of artists. Um, And Rayner is really famous for uh, de-spectacularizing dance. So taking dance down to the level of the everyday and kind of asking like, well, if dance is a series of like very performed, very trained, very virtuosic moves, why can dance not also be people with no training kind of like going through the motions in a space, like moving a chair around in a space for 20 minutes, AKA Chantal Ackerman moving a mattress around a room for 30 minutes in this, the beginning of this is, which is basically what she does. Um, And Ackerman labels this first section, the time of subjectivity. And there's a lot more to talk about what's going on in that section, but that's the first section. The middle section, um, she leaves the flat and she goes sort of on the road, but the majority of it takes place in uh, the cab of a truck where she is being, she hitchhikes and gets a ride with a, a male truck driver played by Niels Aristrup, who um, people might recognize as a much, much older man from that film in Prophet a few years ago, A Prophet, the Jacques Odiard film. Really? Yeah, he's, he's the older man. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> wow. <laughs> there you go. So some art cinema continuity over, what, 40 years? or something crazy wow. but um, shout out to that guy <laughs> exactly <laughs> no, he's great i mean he's great in this one too and uh yeah anyway so so that's the middle section she's in this uh, cab uh, sorry the cab of this truck and the relationship with this truck driver is very strange and we'll talk about that more she calls this section the time of the other or the time of reportage and it's much more kind of influenced by like documentary cinema modes like observational cinema it's 16 millimeter film blown up to 35 so it's much grainier much more like observational looking Uh, and then the third section she arrives at um, the apartment of a woman who you quickly deduce she's had a relationship with uh, in the past and they have a kind of funny meal together the woman at first doesn't want her to stay Ackerman sort of wheedles her way into staying and then they spend the night together uh, and and it's shot in a really unusual way and we'll talk about that more but then uh, this section Ackerman calls the time of the relationship and critics have often talked about it as a kind of like inversion or a 
shifting of pornographic modes of like modes of pornographic cinema because it is unsimulated sex that's happening on screen so um anyway there's the broad overview of this like absolutely fascinating (laughs) totally wild film (laughs) so simon where do we want to go from here more do we want to talk about the first section more well i just want to go to acknowledging the chutzpah of having what the film that kate just described as your first feature let's just take a moment (laughs) god damn Shot in five days or something? It's wild. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think I, I don't mind acknowledging that the first, especially the, I think the, the first section where she is just in the flat, I think is probably the most difficult chunk of section we've had to talk about on the show so far. Like, do I think it? it there's even like a, a tiny critic part of me that thinks, well, if it had been half the duration, I think it probably could have been just as effective. But uh, maybe, but maybe that's not true. Uh, I'd, I'd have to sit down with an editing suite, and I'm not about to do that. It's a it's a really wild film. Uh, I I only had time to watch it twice, but I I, I do think um, shout out to uh, Ira Sachs who gives a little bit of a has a little bit of a feature right on the film on uh, on Criterion. Another shout out to Criterion Channel, by the way, not only because they shouted us out. Uh, on their on their Twitter feed, which I was not expecting, uh, but Ke- we're just going to keep shouting out, and it's going to keep working for us. <laughs> um, but he was talking about how, in his initial viewing, he was baffled by the movie, uh, and then he ended up seeing it a second time in a different context, and suddenly it lit up. Um, and he specifically talks about uh, the sex scene as being um, a, a major a major catalyst for that. The uh, I have to say that the the trucker sequence does feel. Um, it feels more writerly to me than the other two. So like it, it feels like despite the, despite the documentary style, it feels like this is a character that, that has been constructed for a movie played by an actor. Um, I don't know. Did, did, did anyone, did anyone else feel that way? Well, I mean, certainly he's maybe one of the only figures in the film who reads as, yeah, like a kind of character, as you say, like a sort of constructed I mean, kind of, he's not exactly naturalist, but what you would expect to call a sort of naturalist film character, like he seems to have a kind of interiority and a history and, which is interesting that like the the male heterosexual character is given that, whereas neither of the women in the film really are. And Ackerman's like the portrayal of her own subjectivity, I think is actually at the heart of the film. So we can come back to that. But the, um, the third woman, again, she is a character, but she really isn't given much in the way of sort of characterization or dialogue compared to the male character for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Aaron, are, is there a section of the film that you find sort of like the most challenging or the most interesting? Or What I find interesting about the film um, and what links the sex scene to the first section where she's like alone in the room um, is that I understand the film to be taking aesthetic strategies that are normally understood to be cold, distancing, ascetic, or unwelcoming and like drawing out how they can provoke relational possibility, um, how they can illustrate invention rather than just negation. Um, as someone invested in the queer potential of asexuality, or I don't know, because Ackerman is kind of suspicious of these identity-based registers, um, but just like any forms of non-penetrative eroticism, um, the the film's refusal of typical markers of identification or suture strike me as her means of building off of structuralist filmmaking through a specifically queer optic. So she's taking this formal provocation um, 
this this interruption to certain kinds of medial expectations and making about not just non-heterosexual transformation um, as someone like Andy Warhol had, but the particular challenge of women without bonds, um, like a, a woman absent of intimate obligation. And so this invites a set of questions like which prescriptions of gender and sexuality are challenged by loneliness or by isolation um, and which less delimited versions of erotic life might be elaborated if we are not so reliant on what could broadly be called like coupled forms. And what does it mean to depict a woman in these very precise, languid, nude compositions and invest her body with an erotic spark that is also totally indifferent to our look, kind of like obscure and illegible? And I think that's what Ackerman is getting at in the following quote, um, which is about the protagonist of Les Rendezvous d'Anna. Quote, since she is nomadic, she is not an owner and celibate, she can either be related to others or be alone. Being alone, outside any system, belonging already to another world, she represents a way of being ahead of her time that prepares our future, a sort of mutant, unquote. So what I find really fascinating about this is that here isolation is not... Um, construed as a kind of lack it's a form of speculative thought Um, it imagines otherwise what sex can be and I guess that would in general be my response to um, that student's remark that the film isn't sexy it's like maybe it's not um, at, at least in terms of these like traditional registers but it's invested in thinking of new forms of what sex could constitute and what eroticism is. Absolutely. And I think this is, again, a a major theme for Ackerman's work is this question of sort of how to depict loneliness, how to depict relationality when I think for her, the absence of of a feeling of felt relationality is such an important part of what she's doing and what she's trying to kind of unearth or depict. Um, no, definitely. I mean, and I think all of this is, again, sort of deepened by the fact that the first section, and, and critics have commented on this a lot with the first section, where, you know, Ackerman is calling it like the time of subjectivity. And so you would expect this idea of a woman alone in a room for 30 minutes kind of doing activities, you would expect it to have to be giving us some kind of sense of quote unquote, who she is or something, right? Like some sense of interiority. Interiority. (laughs) But instead, what she's doing is sort of like denying that to you in every possible way. And she's doing it really interestingly. And some of it chimes with strategies we're talking about in the previous podcast episode, but where in the time of subjectivity section, you often have Ackerman describing, and we should, sorry, just to be specific, we shouldn't say Ackerman here. She's she's playing a character and the character is never really named in the film, but in the credits, Ackerman calls the woman playing her Julie. So she calls herself Julie in the credits. Um, so sort of this character of Julie. Yeah. Um, and so Julie is alone in this space. And, you know, at first there's furniture in the room. Julie is dressed. Um, And then over the course of the 30 minutes, she goes through this whole series of processes whereby she like strips herself of all of this. So she removes all the furniture from the room. She strips down naked pretty early on and remains kind of mostly naked, sometimes half dressed for the rest of it. She stops doing like normal human things like eating food. (laughs) 
the thing that made me laugh going back to it now is the fact that the majority of it, through all of it, she's eating sugar out of a bag. Like this yes. is the thing that she sustains herself with is just eating. And honestly, you guys, I found it a little nauseating going back to it as like a fully grown adult. As a 20 year old, I was like, yeah, sure. Eating sugar out of a bag. Why not? As an adult, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> can, can I just say, I don't know the precise origin of the sh- of the eating sugar out of a paper bag thing. It almost felt to me like a weird joke about like what who is what is it that people think women do when they're alone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've definitely discovered our secret. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's like a weird inversion of the old uh, the old pickup line about oh you're you're so sweet you must eat sugar at your apartment all day. <laughs> That's how I imagine it started, but I I, I can't prove it. But again, it's a very funny thing, right? Because it's like one of these classic things that Ackerman, a strategy she employs where it's both too much and not enough at the same time. Like it's both sort of very alien and strange that she's not eating food or that we don't sense that she ever needs to eat food. But at the same time, like eating sugar is so excessive, right? Like it's it's too much for what you actually need to be doing um, and kind of off and strange. But, uh, but so sorry, Simon, were you going to add something? Well, the only other thing I was going to say is that that one of the odder touches about when she's wandering around the apartment, not really clothed, um, and it touches back to what you were saying about uh, about the opening as a dance piece, which is that she's she explicitly says, uh, "I'll I'll traipse around naked in front of the window so I can be seen." Although there doesn't really seem to end up being any spectators, but she's certainly uh, she's certainly it, it's part of the it's part of what's happening that there's supposed to be a, someone's being performed for. Her even if only ambiently. Yeah, this and this question, I mean, I think that's an important part of this beginning is this question of sort of like, well, can, right? I mean, if we're moving from subjectivity to the other, to relationality in the final section, it's like this question of like, can subjectivity exist on its own? I mean, I feel like that's sort of like the conceptual riff of this first section of the film is Ackerman like stripping everything away, stripping away all conventions, and then sort of trying to find out what's underneath that. And what you end up with is this kind of strange series of pronouncements. She's writing letters and you hear about the letters in overhead narration. We don't know who the letters are to, uh, that according to the, the, the title of the film, they're to the two of the title, which is you, right? It's the, it's, so they're to an unnamed you. And some people have read it as them being addressed to the lover in the third section. I don't actually think that's there in the film though. It's not clear that that's who she's writing to. But then again, you have all of these sort of things where um, the words that she's saying and she's describing her own actions, they don't actually match up with what you see. Or when you do see the thing, it happens much later in the sequence. And so there's this very like deliberate effort to kind of dislodge the referentiality of what the character is saying from what she's actually doing. So again, you can't really deduce a kind of interiority from this. It just seems weirdly split and broken and piecemeal. But then as to to build on what Simon was saying, you have this question that sort of builds an importance over that section where it's like, so does her subjectivity exist in relation to someone else? Does it kind of take form once she's seen by other people or once she's seeing other people? And it culminates with her. There's a man who walks by and sees her on the bed and she sort of hops up and then she's looking out the window at one point and you hear children off screen outside and then she looks at herself in the mirror and then she goes out uh, of the room that's the kind of end of the sequence i liked that you linked it to the third part aaron because i think that's true as well i think you get some really interesting material in this first section where ackerman is kind of like inverting traditional portrayals of the naked woman basically like this idea of a kind of like art historical tradition of the woman to be looked at ackerman's ackerman's physicality is quite i mean she's obviously beautiful of course but her physicality is quite unusual compared to the way women are normally like naked women are normally depicted and she both plays on those tropes but then really subverts them too i don't know um does that strike you as correct yeah like i I was just like thinking about this like question of like the lack of 
instrumentalization. So like it could like carry over from like the sugar to even like the duration. I think that there's like a tradition of reading that as some kind of like endurance test or something that's like ascetic. I don't know if I'm like saying that word, like not aesthetic, but the one where it's like depriving yourself of yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> like that, it, that it's something that you have to put up with. There's also a way of thinking about that as some kind of pleasure, I suppose. Um, and I was hesitant to say like what you just said, that like I find like Ackerman really beautiful. And so even just like looking at her and like, I guess, I don't know, we can debate whether like, a queer woman looking at her is different than like the male gaze or something like that. Um, But like, even the compositions are so like precise, like it's not just like she set up a camera in her room and then just documented stuff like in that kind of direct cinema tradition, like it is posed some of these images and they're um, and perhaps that's engaging with, the like art historical tradition of the nude. Um, but it is, I don't know that there, there's some kind of like maybe semi erotic charge to that duration and that that could be read as a kind of queer response, I guess, to the sense that like a film has to be doing something constantly and like moving things along and like being a set of continuous acts of like narrative fecundity or however you want to think about that. I agree with that completely. I love that. The idea that Ackerman's sort of like resistance to event is it kind of ties into this larger kind of questioning of like orders of productivity, orders of like reproduction, futurity. Absolutely. No, I mean, that makes total sense to me. Um, For the art historical kind of angle, I I, just to clarify what I meant, I think what I was trying to hint at there in my half-formed way was just saying that the... um, I think because there is this sort of long tradition in in art history, Western art history, maybe we should say, of um, the female nude, the tradition there often presents the woman as um, available to the to the gay, to the looker, right? Available to the presumed male looker, right? In the sense, often that the woman's gaze is directed back at the the van, at the point from which someone would be looking at the painting or the image, and Ackerman here again is is kind of refuting that, both in the sense that the character is really not sort of oriented towards the spectator. We don't have any access to like her interiority, her subjectivity, her desires. Her desires are genuinely kind of baffling, right? Like we actually have no idea what she wants and why. Um, So there's that. But then also the fact, and this continues throughout the film, the fact that like you have the durational setup of the camera, these sort of extended sequences, you really kind of have this sense of materiality of where you're looking from it connects with what was going on in, in Jean Dielman, or in this case, what will be going on in Jean Dielman in this timeline. Um, we really are made to feel our position as lookers, right? We're not this kind of invisible, we don't have a voyeuristic gaze on this woman in a room. Instead, we're really left kind of questioning, well, like, why are we here? Why do we have access to looking at this woman? What does it do? Um, and and why, yeah, what are we getting out of this, I think? Well, and the question that perhaps uh, I'm looking most to have answered, or at least to I don't think I, I don't expect a definitive answer, but I would like to hear people's thoughts and theories is it is notable enough that the film ends with, you know, an unsimulated sex scene involving the director of the film. But it also happens to, you know, come after um, the, the, the second part in which we have this trucker character who describes in detail a much less savory sort of um, realm of sexual fantasy in which he's essentially like an incest slash rape fantasy about his 11 year old daughter 
Yeah. Um, I'd forgotten about that part of it. I was like, oh my God. Well, yeah. and I, and it's especially on the rewatch, I was really, I, I, and I still, I'd be curious to get people's thoughts about how do these, how do these parts uh, relate to each other? Um, I mean, it's, it is noteworthy that in the uh, in that third section, um, that's also where we have Julie actually demonstrating some enjoyment of life. She's uh, you know smiling um, notably. I think I think for the only time in the film, really. I'm not quite sure exactly what was what was intended by this juxtaposition of sort of the the grotesque and the somewhat more loving, at least somewhat more loving. I'm inclined to resist, but I don't know if this is me asserting my priorities onto the film. Um, but I could see an easy way of reading that 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 the the scene of heterosexuality is like depraved yeah or like <laughs> elided too because isn't there some kind of act that happens between the two of them she, she yeah. masturbates him yeah. she like, gives him a hand job at one point yeah whereas yeah. like which is totally oh uh, yeah which is off screen uh yeah exactly um whereas the, the the scene between like her and the woman does she does she have a name I don't know if she has a name in the film. I don't believe she does. The actress is uh, Claire Wathion, who was in La Fonte Aimeo that we talked about last week, and they were mm-hmm. friends. It's some sort of assertion of, um, I don't know, even like a quasi like lesbian separatist fantasy where <laughs> like relations with women yeah. are inherently more satisfying and like uncorrupted and pure or something but like all of those words like I don't really want to associate it with Ackerman so or like no. with her like political or aesthetic commitments so no, nor is the at least to, <laughs> at, at least to me maybe maybe it's, I could be contradicted on this but the dynamic between Julie and this other woman is not itself uh uncomplicated Right. Yeah. So, I mean, these are kind of, you guys are sort of bringing up some of the really big questions that critics have talked about, particularly in relation to this film over its long existence. Um, You know, is the film sort of uh, casting aspersions on heterosexuality? Is it kind of creating a sort of like value scheme where one is valued more than the other? Is it not? Is it denying these kinds of divisions between different modes or forms of identity, different kind of like paradigms of sexuality? And so, I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. And I think I have my thoughts on it. I mean, I think one thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is maybe just worth acknowledging at this point, is that I think Ackerman is sort of explicitly kind of bringing up these questions just by the structure of the film itself, by moving from the position of the, the singular to into the world of like the plural, right? Into the world of the the two possible relationalities. Two is of course limiting, but just this is what the film is dealing with, with a male and with a female, right? It's just two ill. Um, and so on the one hand, it's like very schematic. And I think there were very kind of like early reactions to it that, and I still, I mean, I was reading one that was published fairly recently that still tends to kind of think that as Aaron was implying there, that kind of like, even by calling the last section, like the time of the relationship, the film is really ascribing a kind of stronger sense of possibilities of relationality between women than between uh, the kind of male character. And I think I agree with that. I think where I 
push back a little on some of the early readings about the kind of male figure is that, and, and I'm not alone in this, other critics have made this point too, is that that Ackerman may actually be be being a little humorous in terms of how kind of like piggish and extreme the man is in the second section, that like it may not be quite as literal as just like all heterosexual men are like disgusting dirtbags. It's like, I, I really <laughs> don't think the film, and I actually think our pairing with other films this week kind of does an interesting job of bringing this out, is that like, I think Ackerman is very clearly as an artist and maybe as an individual, deeply interested in questions of um, heterosexual kind of like rights of romance, rights of passage, rights of kind of engagement. She, it, to her, they're not, I don't think they are, I don't think they exist in opposition to kind of like experiences of queer sexuality. I think they kind of run alongside each other and she is sort of often moving back and forth between them or kind of gauging how they meet, how they compare, how they relate to each other. And um, But of course the sequence with the band is, it's interesting. I mean, it's also funny too, because like that sequence, people tend to focus so much on the final section of it, which is this hand job followed by his long monologue about um, the fantasies. And I should say too, I, I'm not sure if this is 100% correct, but I think Matt Mangold talks about the fact that that sequence where he does the monologue is the only part of the film that was shot with sound. The rest of it was all shot silently and the sound was added after the fact. It's just him speaking in that one <laughs> section, which I thought there was some dialogue with the lovers that I thought was live, but maybe I have that wrong anyway it doesn't matter um but prior to what you get and I actually this goes to the point I was trying to make here prior to the to the section with the truck driver talking before that you get these very long sequences with her uh with him on the road kind of going through these very like banal repetitive long boring um forms of life and and like while I guess those have a kind of observational quality about them this like sociological realm of of the trucker's life quote unquote on the road they also have a kind of funny set of points about like heterosexual like domesticity with them I don't know if you guys picked this up like but for me the sequences where it's like they get out they go for dinner at the truck stop they're sitting at the truck stop they're watching the tv it's like as if they're in a living room they're like a bourgeois living room it's like the, the tv is playing they're eating their like meal they're like kind of engaging with each other like helping each other get their food ready but they're not really talking to each other it's like this idea of the question of like what happens to Ackerman's subjectivity in that section is playing out there right it's like she's in it she's on screen as Simon says you see her smiling even though she's often a bit more sidelined in the compositions than the first and the uh, third section. But, you know, it's just this sort of question of like, she's present, but she's really sort of pushed in the background as this like funny scenario of like her and this like weird little couple with this man takes, takes shape. And then like you have this explosion of sort of heterosexual sexuality at the end of it, which is a little intense. There is kind of a strange uh, Strozhekian uh, road trip going on. <laughs> at least to me it never quite bloomed into like full comedy but there is kind of a strange comic energy floating around for about 15 minutes or so <laughs> before things yeah. get a little a, a little sweaty uh also can i uh kate can i just quote you for a pull quote for the episode blurb uh all heterosexual men are dirtbags <laughs> <laughs> Kate Renabom says, yeah. definitively. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, Aaron, are you, do you have a, a thoughts and response to any of that about the middle section there? Well, I wonder, like, what you just said. It was really interesting that, like, maybe there's some sort of, like, going back to this, like, relation of loneliness and of being, like, lonely with other people um, that I think is that it's not necessarily a condition of absolute isolation, which the first section seems to be, 
but that you can, I don't know, have some kind of like ambient bond with other people in public, but also not really be in relation with them. And there's something like kind of poignant about that, even where it ends up going. Mm. And I would add to that something that I think runs through all these movies is spending time with people, sort of being lonely with others versus uh, having a relationship with someone who is not present or using someone else as a way to channel that relationship or, you know, or think or processing a relationship while you're by yourself. Um, these are also all happening throughout these other films in, in really unusual ways, I think. Yeah, I mean, and indeed, I think that's sort of part of what is so uh, unsettling about the male truck driver's um, spiel at the end there is that you you very much have this kind of sense of a, like a, how to say it, almost a cliche of a kind of heterosexual um viewpoint, particularly in that period, right? And we should say, like, Ackerman was absolutely aware of the kind of feminist movement in that period. I mean, this we're not projecting anything onto this. Like, she had already, I think, at that point been involved in a ill-fated um, film project organized by Group Siquet Po, which is a, a subdivision of the Mouvement de Libération des Femmes, uh, de Femmes in um, France, the women's liberation movement in France at that point, uh, which was like the psychoanalytic kind of subset of um, this movement uh, and the woman at the head of that, whose name I'm forgetting, I think it's Antoinette, Antoinette Fouquet, maybe Fouquet, I forget. She um, wanted to make a film and Ackerman was briefly involved with that with Mengolt. It really didn't go very well. But Ackerman was sort of very kind of, I think, in, in, involved with these questions. I mean, she was aware of what was going on at the sort of like the women's liberation movement. And so I think you can almost read what she's doing with the truck driver there as both a kind of level of awareness about you know, these questions of this perceived, this perceived strong division between um, heterosexual men and women, particularly queer women, uh, that was in play in that moment. But then I also think you can kind of like see her pushing it just a little farther. So it becomes a kind of cliche, almost this idea of the man talking at length about women as if they are interchangeable, as if they are just their body parts, as if like all women of all ages are sexually available to him, including his own daughter. Like it, you know, it really, she really kind of pushes it into this extreme, really uncomfortable place that, that instrumentalizes very much any idea of women, which then echoes with the fact that her as a character is sort of sidelined, even as, of course, she is the director of these sequences, right? She, This is what's so fascinating is she's writing him, she's directing him, and her kind of like position in the frame almost indicates that. At one point after she gives him this hand job, he like leans over on the um, uh, steering wheel and then briefly looks at the camera or looks at her position in the seat right as the se sequence ends so there's these kinds of touches here that i think it she's always making it a little difficult to kind of reduce anything to like a simple mm -hmm. statement about what's going on yeah well we do have two other films to talk about so I'm, I, I will invite anyone to make well, we still have I, to talk about the third section of Jatua a little bit here because we barely talked yes, about that so that's, that's true that's right yeah. we've been sort of talking around it it's true so well let's let's get some remarks about that and then we can transition yeah, because you're right Simon I'll just talk forever so we should <laughs> try to do that but it's um <laughs> but yeah the third section is incredible I mean the third section is like far and away the the most gripping part of this film I think it also is probably the most difficult to talk about so yes why don't I ask you guys to talk about it then? <laughs> <laughs> the one Ackerman film that I couldn't watch in the living room. Uh, I, th I think I the only one. I did do that. Yeah. Like with uh, my roommate, like this would have been like, I don't know, four or five years ago. She's like one of my best friends. And she was like, kind of like, <laughs> she told me afterwards, she was like, yeah, I kind of like wondered what was going on there. But I, I was intrigued. <laughs> she's like not surprised 
one of my roommates has only been here for like two weeks, so it's just it's a little bit early to break the jutsuide uh, seal in a public space. I mean, all jokes aside, we 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 really do need to take a moment just to once again acknowledge the the chutzpah of putting an uh a, a, in this is a 1974 we're talking about. I mean, it was headlines in the mid 90s when when Vincent Gallo made the Brown Bunny. That was- I thought it's funny. I thought of the Brown Bunny too, Simon. I was like, it's funny that this film and, and puts Ackerman in a league with Vincent Gallo. Like that, those two are sort of maybe some of the only ones who've ever done. Oh, and apparently Abel Ferrara too. Although I don't actually know if Abel Ferrara appears what? in the porn films he directed. No, he does. He does appear in the some at least some of the porn films he directed. So that's a very funny set of people. Uh, somebody should program a series that's like Abel Ferrara. Brown Bunny, Shatulal, but it's, um, but it does bring up an interesting point though, which is that Ackerman uh, ha- wasn't going to star in the film originally. She did have an actress that she wanted to play in it, but I think as we hinted at last week, she was still very much kind of figuring out her ways of relating to actors and like these ideas. Like as she had said, you know, actors really wanted to kind of bring naturalism to things. They wanted to bring motivation to things, and she really didn't like that. She really wanted to strip that out of what was happening in the film. And so I think at the time, her starring in it was. Was just an easy solution because they were trying to do it so quickly in the years that came after this film she's she increasingly became kind of embarrassed about her position in this film she says later that she didn't understand at that age what a strong like how in her terminology it's something like how strong it would be to have her presence in the film in those kinds of scenes she says in retrospect she wouldn't have done it which is interesting i mean it's you know because i think like with you simon i think so much of the power of this film comes from the fact of her in it i mean it is really a kind of un it's at points it's almost unbearable this display of like herself i mean this like display of kind of intimacy but it's a again it's like a restricted intimacy it's an intimacy we don't have access to um we should say too that the way that the sex is depicted is quite unusual. It's it's only three shots uh, of these two women engaging with each other, and the way that their sort of bodies are engaging with each other is something you see throughout Ackerman's career, actually, which is like bodies kind of throwing themselves at each other violently. It's not about the sort of like no, quote unquote normal forms of like sexual encounter, like. I guess, genital encounter that you see in like pornography. It's not really about that. It's much more about these sort of bodies, like trying to get as close as they can to each other in this really almost violent way. Yeah. It just, it makes me think about this piece by Nick Davis, where he talks about like the mobilization of like the idea of real sex in films. Um, Like, and he's mostly talking about like stuff like the Brown Bunny, like 2000s era, like art house cinema, like it was kind of a trend. Um, and he talks about how, like, what that does, that it's, like, not only inscribing a kind of, like, realism so that there's, like, a relationship between the pro-filmic and the narrative, but also, like, what real sex constitutes, and that in that framework, it tends to be, it either shows, like, ejaculation or penetration, um, and so, like, if you don't have that, like, kind of, I don't know, phallic imperative it's difficult to determine like what constitutes a sexual act. And that like plays into the whole kind of like history of archiving or rendering the truth of lesbian eroticism because it doesn't like function on like that kind of like consummative logic. And I think in that piece, he actually like brings up the fact that this could be considered like some kind of landmark in terms of like these discourses, but it doesn't tend to get raised or understood in those terms because 
there's the absence of, um, yeah, like, uh, yeah, some kind of phallic ontology of sex, I guess. I don't know, that sounds really, like, technical, but... <laughs> I, I, I wonder also how much uh, it contributes to that to to the sort of non landmarking of this sequence, I wonder if the the if another major contribution to that is is the aesthetic of the fact that I mean most you're talking about I think it's only in three, the whole sequence is only three shots and I think most of it is just that is that wide sort of me- medium shot where the bodies in the space are only taking up maybe like I don't know an eighth of the frame which uh, adds to the strange uh, voyeuristic feeling uh, you were describing Kate. Of just like you, it feels like you're like you're sitting in the room watching it happen. It does, and and people have spoken have spoken about that as well as as another way in which she's kind of upending the traditional kind of pornographic um, visual codes here is that it's it's very clearly not designed for a certain sort of like visual pleasure of the spectator or like erotic pleasure of the spectator, because again you feel quite awkward, and I remember this watching it as like a person in this class when I was young is like to just really you're not sure how you're supposed to be relating to this because it's not being given to you as a kind of like form of sexual gratification um and yet you're here kind of like observing these two women having sex it's again it's a kind of observational paradigm it just it's it's very it's not very easy to kind of like put it into preset categories. And I, and I think, again, this is exactly what Ackerman is doing throughout the film. I, I think another thing we haven't talked about here, and I actually, I don't think I've ever, I haven't read everything written about this film, certainly, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody mention this, is the fact that Ackerman throughout, I think in every section, is playing up the connections between childness, like childness and sexuality, which is a theme that runs throughout all of the rest of the films that we're dealing with here. But here it's quite explicit. I mean, you have her encounter with the, um, the lover when she arrives, she relates to the lover as though the lover was her mother. Like she demands, she like demands food from her in this very kind of childlike way. Like she's like, make me sandwiches and I want more sandwiches. And the mother sits there like <laughs> making her these sandwiches. And then Ackerman like reaches out and touches her breast in this like way that can double for the child reaching for the mother's breast and the, the lover reaching for the, the other's breast. And so it, she plays with this. And then even with the trucker, like after there's the scene where she masturbates him, there's again a very kind of like childlike scene where she's with him in the bathroom room watching him shave as though she as though he was her father as though it was like a kind of you know bourgeois scene of the little girl watching her daddy and like he even bops her on the nose at one point after this it's like very funny um and so i don't know that that i think again is this kind of like realistically deeply uncomfortable sets of questions i think for our from from a kind of current vantage point about the overlap between childness and um sexual desire, sexual activity. And so again, it's Ackerman always probing the boundaries of like sort of identity, what is kind of in, what is out, what is overlap, what needs to be kept separate. I mean, I think this is very much one of her interests. As much as she seems disinterested in this kind of like um, mainstream pornographic representation, Ackerman also seems to be positioning herself against an imaginary that's being fostered at the same time in experimental lesbian cinema. So her vision of sex is not one grounded in this kind of gauzy um, emotionality, haptic sensation, um, sort of same gender communities. like, I, I don't know to what degree she was aware of these filmmakers, but in either case, she seems to disidentify with this version of queerness, um, one that sees in women's eroticism um, with other women, 
uh, a better, healthier, purer version of romantic love. Um, she's too interested in tension and distance for this, um, too fixated on what cannot necessarily be ameliorated in sex or in intimacy writ large. The only thing that I would uh, add to that would be to say um, someone someone at, it, I forget in which collection this this uh, quote is is stolen from, but someone asked her about the influence of people like Andy Warhol and she would say, well, uh, whatever her other objections to the, I mean, she said she did mention, I only saw a couple of Warhol films, but also she said, um, you know, I think of my films as being somewhat, uh, as being sentimental compared to something like, uh, something like Warhol. And there is, that's another note that's just, flo- that's floating around in these, in, in, I think basically all of her films is that uh, no matter how sort of advanced the formal games get or how odd or, um, or distancing some effects might be. I do. I do feel like there is a core of emotionality to her films. Yeah, I mean, I think this is. I think it's. It's very present in that last section. You know, which again, she calls the kind of section of the relationship. It's like not a relationship that's being depicted for us, but you very much get the sense of a kind of like. I don't know equivalency or equalness is I don't because I don't want to compare that to like the heterosexual sequences but you do really get the sense of like it being two two figures meeting each other on their own kind of terms there isn't a kind of like um what's the word like efa- uh, effacement of one for the other right it's not like the, the previous sequence that way so there's that aspect of it um I was gonna say too again we haven't talked about it as well here but another element of the film that people have talked about a lot is the fact that the this section ends with her leaving and the film opens with the words and I left and so there's this question of like whether the film takes place on a sort of like as if it's a loop as if there's a kind of implied non-linearity or linearity whether this is a sort of like you know the narrative of a kind of a uh, not coming of age but um how oh, there's another term for it i'm forgetting but the 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 becoming like the social becoming an adult becoming oh i'm forgetting the Northern name of German? the like so, as sort of like the the anthropological kind of narrative, like the structuralist narrative of right. every culture yeah. has a, this tradition of like change of changing from one social position to another social position, like whether that's this or not, and you know I we don't need to debate that, but I, I just it's interesting to point out this question because I think it relates to um, a lot of the back and forth that critics have had about whether Ackerman is sort of like ultimately kind of. If, to simplify things like pro lesbian in this film or whether like whether the film is ultimately a sort of like lesbian film or whether the film is sort of bringing lesbianism in among other modes of relationality and whether she's sort of moving through them in this kind of like nomadic way this mobile way where identity for Ackerman is more about sort of moving and changing and not about reducing down to a kind of single static permanent thing and I think that was all sort of echoed in the fact that Ackerman fairly famously didn't want this film to play in um, lesbian and gay film festivals. She, she really, she was like, I don't want my films to be lesbian and gay films. I don't want my films to be feminist films. As she said, she was like, I want my films to be Chantal Ackerman films. So really the, the, you know, she was choosing the auteur kind of model rather than the identity model, which is interesting. And maybe we'll have time to talk about that on another episode. Quand il marchait sur les eaux, il regarda longtemps au loin du haut de sa solitude. Il eut bientôt la certitude que seul les noyés pouvaient le voir. Homme sur les mers de l'espoir, vous voguerez jusqu'au dernier. 
The next two films we're, we're going to be talking about, Kate, maybe you'll dispel this in some way, but uh, not knowing too much about uh, the production of either one, I have to say, uh, to me, one felt very much like a sort of a dry <laughs> run for the other with some interesting little divergences. Does that seem like uh, an, an okay characterization? Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's some ways in which they're kind of very starkly different from each other, but they have a lot. There's a lot there as well. Both are about kind of like young women on the kind of like adolescent edge um, in, yeah, sort of with, uh, dealing with, again, this kind of question of like introduction into um, a kind of heterosexual relationship at the same time as that being held in tension with or against a kind of uh, a queer relationship with another woman, another young woman. Um, and they're both just like really funny and engaging. I mean, once we get into the 80s and the 90s, we really move away from Ackerman's kind of minimalist sort of arid, dry style and into a different kind of style. Um, and so I don't know, I, I can, do you want me to just give some backstory on JFM, JFM, like the making? The only other thing I would add is them having in common is both having been produced as part of a themed anthology. Yes. Yeah. An omnibus film. Um, yeah. JFM, JFM was made as part of the omnibus film uh, Paris Vupard, uh, sorry, <laughs> Bar, <laughs> my terrible French pronunciation. No, Paris seen by 20 years later, which was um, a kind of sequel to a film made 20 years earlier, Paris um, which had filmmakers like uh, Jean-Luc Godard, I think Romare, a number of the French New Wave filmmakers in it, Chabrol, I'm forgetting who else, but um, there were all these shorts set in Paris. And so this was a, re, a, a remake or a kind of sequel to that. And so she made this very short film. I think Je Femme Jeff was only like 13 minutes long or something. It's quite, quite short. I, it's a very charming film. I mean, this one I had seen many years ago. Um, it's very cute. You have... Um, the two young actresses, uh, I, of course, didn't write down their names, so I'm forgetting them. But uh, for people who don't didn't make this connection, one of them is the actress who turns up later in Pulp Fiction. She plays the French girlfriend in Pulp Fiction. That's right. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Another. Wow. Damn. So there you go. Six degrees of Chantel. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, she, and she knew everybody when they were young. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so these two girls, they, they kind of have run away from home from Brussels. They're in Paris and uh, you kind of follow them around for an evening. And they, this film is, again, it's a little difficult to describe, but you have Ackerman's like very writerly sensibility here. You also have her kind of like burgeoning engagement with the musical form here. Um, Ackerman in the 80s, and we'll talk about this in future episodes, but Ackerman in the 80s really moves towards working in like a musical genre mode. And here that mostly takes the form of the way the girls speak to each other, which is in this really like rhythmic kind of clipped form of dialogue. You know, one will always say like, I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm cold. Like this is, yeah. So there's more to be said, but what did you guys make of the film? I don't know if it's too early to bring this in, but I thought about it when we were talking um, about Chitu Il um, and you brought up this question of the relationship between childhood and queerness. Um, this made me think also about theories of queer temporality in general, which like are usually organized around contestations of teleology or a linear trajectory wherein adulthood is the realization of normative sexual imperatives, including identity and proper object choice. Um, like Catherine Bond Stockton calls the refusal of this timeline growing sideways, uh, which like I think resonates quite a bit with Ackerman's interest in duration or recursivity. Um, 
in forestalling narrative development and questioning aesthetic resolution. Um, and her book of the same name, Stockton, declares not only that all children are queer, she also implies that there's something inherently childlike about queerness, um, specifically in its failure to be sufficiently adult, um, where adult entails like the um, achievement of certain time markers, such as marriage, a career, children. So contra most conservative ideology, children are foreign, strange beings, um, figures that are available to us conceptually only as a memory, um, people who, despite attempts to um, enshrine them in this kind of mode of purity and innocence, um, will always resist adult grasp. Um, and I think it's easy to see the queerness there. Um, and it's also easy to see Ackerman's young girls, um, girls whose romantic lives are like um, not yet predetermined or, or may never be determined um, and who exist in a space between friendship and surreptitious longing that kind of contests both straight and lesbian endings. Yeah. And like on that sense of the the space of kind of adolescence or like the tail end of childhood as a space of kind of potentiality. I mean, I, I this is, I think, absolutely here. And I, I love that you put it in that context with the kind of um, the theorization about queerness. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but that's great. And the uh, I think Patty White, um, Patricia White has written about the second film. We'll talk about portrait of a young woman, a portrait of a young girl in the context of a kind of like minor lesbian cinema. And we can come back to that idea. But I, I think one point she makes about the films, GFMJ4 uh, included maybe, is that so many of the films Ackerman makes around young women, kind of relationships between young women, that they're really marked by a sense of being kind of both having a sort of potentiality, but also really being stuck, like really being in this place of kind of being, uh, yeah, like unable to get out of something kind of on a track, like repeating. And as Patricia puts it, like, because it's like potential only, it's sort of unrealized potential at this point or something, it is, um, they feel like they're kind of nowhere. Like they're not really in a place yet. They're sort of not yet where they're supposed to be, or they're trying to get there. And, you know, which is also fascinating because so many of these films, J2LL included, all of them deal with a narrative that is um, quite important in kind of queer histories of queer cinema, queer literature, which is the kind of road narrative, the idea of leaving the home, which is often codified as the kind of like, you know, the heterosexual space, the domestic space, um, and thereby the space by which the young person can't sort of be what they want to be. So they have to leave, they have to go on the road and then find the place where they're going to be. I mean, in Ackerman, I think her contribution to this is often to sort of maybe point out that it doesn't end. Like you don't get to a journey. You don't get to a destination at the end of the road. The road just continues. But that's very present in all of these films. In every one of them, the girls have run away or they're about to run away or they're in the process of running away or mm -hmm. leaving. The uh, the operative plot difference to me between J'Fan Geoffroy and Portrait, which we're going to get to in a second, is that in Portrait du Jeune, du Jeune Femme, they're explicitly in Brussels Whereas here they're ex they're escaping Brussels and they're in they're in Paris I guess they behave differently when they're not at home they have the freedom to for instance dine and dash which our characters in Portrait probably would not feel like doing um, and I, I I kind of like seeing these two films as sort of like one is sort of like the alternate universe version of the same characters on like a field trip or something and so we get to see we get to see how these same because to to me, I do think of the of the people in 
portrait and the people in Jefan Jefroy as effectively the same people. Uh, I don't I don't know if that feels wrong. Well, I just I feel like Jefan Jefroy is just it it, uh, it exists in just a much like lighter, more comic mode. Like it really yeah. it feels to me like a kind of like all of the actions that they do, everything they do in the film, whether it's like they decide they're going to go to bed, they decide they want to eat food, they're going to do this, they have to get ready to go out as they say before they can go for breakfast. They have to age themselves, which just means mm. putting on a little eyeliner. It's it's like every action that they do is kind of condensed down to these sort of like um representative gestures in a kind of funny way and to me that really it's almost like a silent film tropism right it's like it's like this sort of like everything is a little heightened everything is a little happening a little too rapidly a little too quickly and and so they're not really like characters in the sense that you Mm. you do get in um portrait of a young girl which I, i think we can talk about that more but that one is much more in the realm of a kind of like character narrative storyline that, that like that that is even unusual compared to the rest of Ackerman's work whereas JFM yeah. is very much more this sort of like funny collection of <laughs> yeah because <laughs> daisies ish exactly yeah. right yeah. <laughs> daisies yeah. is a really good comparison point yeah it's almost like they have the same amount of story or take a place over a similar amount of time but uh but because it has to condense that story into 12 or 13 minutes it can it it condenses that into a series of bizarre gestures (laughs) (laughs) yes it's true well and we have something here that you'll we'll get again in um uh portrait of a young girl which is that one of the girls uh engages in um sex with a with the man that they meet when they sing for their supper at a restaurant and uh they go home with this guy he's gonna let them stay on their couch but again even i'm imputing more kind of explanation to that mm. than the film gives you they just sort of move from one thing to the next um <laughs> ackerman does not get enough credit by the way for her, her films are full of useful life hacks like ladies you need to find yourself, <laughs> need to find yourself a man find your find your nearest restaurant and someone to duet with it's true and five minute I, crafts I'm, of her time <laughs> it's possible i'm reading a little too much into this but like for the diehard uh, jacques revet nerds out in the audience there i could not help it and i think I'm, my guess is ackerman knew what she was doing with this reference but when the girls go in and sing in the restaurant and you know don't exactly create chaos but like they really are this sort of like upending kind of like ju- joyful goofy force in this like very staid fancy mm. restaurant that they're in as they sing off key loudly to me, it is a direct reference to um, Jean-Pierre Léo walking around in the early parts of um, Rivette's Out One playing his insane harmonica. Yeah. He's pretending to be deaf. He's not deaf. Pretending to be deaf, just like causing chaos everywhere he, everywhere he goes. <laughs> Which again, I love this because I think Ackerman in a lot of these films is very much working in a mode of like nodding to the French New Wave while, as again, Patricia White White points out, kind of like finding the minor within them, like pointing out that even as though, even though those were sort of avant-garde or like minor departures from the mainstream, one can one can even point out how much was being excluded or kind of minored out of even those kind of like departures and so here it's sort of like her take on a lot of the french wave stuff but yeah Uh, kate i figured you were probably going to do this later but i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you to do this now could you unpack the the concept of minor here for for the for the punters at home I can a little bit and Aaron should uh, should join in too because my guess is you also have this a, a bit of this too but the um and again I'm mostly curbing from uh from Patricia's essay but um 
because it's been a while since I've come across the, the minor cinema concept. But basically, it comes out of the work of um, Gilles Deleuze and uh, Guattari, who are French philosophers. Guattari is a psychoanalyst, and they wrote a book called Toward Minor Literature, I think is what it's called, maybe just minor literature, uh, about Kafka. And um, there they sort of argued for the presence of a kind of aesthetic mode um, that they found at work in Kafka's writing that has to do with authors working within a major language. So they're German. So even though Kafka is, is Jewish and is not writing in the language of his, um, history and culture, particularly he's writing in the majoritarian, the, the dominant language, which is German, he finds a way to kind of turn that language against itself. He finds a way to like make the language strange and speak from a kind of minor um, point of view from within that. And for them, it ha that has to do with like Kafka's kind of refusal of metaphor, his very dry style. Um, oh, there's one other point that they use that I'm going to forget. And of course, all of these are relevant for Ackerman. Ackerman actually does all of that sort of same stuff. She sort of refuses to work at the level of metaphor. She has this dry style. Oh, and the, the last one is the kind of refusal to hierarchize between eventfulness and uh, banalness, right? She sort of puts everything together. So in this context, um, Patty White uses that term to argue that uh, Portrait of a Young Girl in the 1960s is doing this kind of minor cinema mode by finding a kind of like lesbian cinema uh, presentation within the sort of more traditional languages of cinema, the more kind of like major dominant languages of cinema. Um, and so we could talk about that more. And it's, it's, I think it's relevant maybe for J.F.M. Dufois as well. The, the minor has three valences and, and that's one of them. Um, and then she's thinking about minor as an age category, um, this position where a person does not have full subjectivity under the law. Um, so, like, they can't own property. Um, there's, like, age of consent legislation. Um, they can't uh, hold a job. Um, and finally, um, she's conceptualizing minor as a relationship to, like, institutionalized modes of production, meaning both certain tropes, um, like the coming out film, and the aesthetics of low-budget personal filmmaking. So the other body of work she discusses is that of Sadie Benning. Um, I think that the article is really valuable for how White reevaluates circumstances that could be considered limitations um, and like understands them instead as sites for marginalized or like delegitimized creativity. Um, but she also contextualizes portrait as a specifically lesbian film, uh, which potentially forecloses other aspects of its narrative or its formal preoccupation with loneliness. Um, and I think of all the films that we've been discussing, this one is maybe the hardest to assimilate under like an understanding of like particularly lesbian cinema. And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know that you can trust her For she's touched your perfect body Skipping ahead to 1993 and yet another anthology project, uh, I'm speaking now directly to anyone who listens to this podcast who directs, writes, produces, or distributes films. I have a couple of notes for you, one of which is, can we have more medium-length films? Yeah. I love medium-length movies. 60 minutes, gorgeous length. Also, 
<laughs> I love the idea of this uh, this film series, which this is a part of, uh, in which uh, I believe ten filmmakers uh, made these uh, ten hour long features. A few of them ended up getting uh, expanded into uh, longer features, which which we we may talk about. Everyone had the stipulation of there had to be a party scene. There has to feature music that you recall from your adolescence, like specific songs. And yeah, there has to be some sort of, uh, I guess, retrospective element involving youth. And these are, you know, the the filmmakers were varying ages. So, of course, they're calling back to different eras. But um, so, yeah, 60 Minutes, 93, uh, uh, 1993, once again, uh, a story of two young girls on a journey of... uh, on a journey of uh, let's let's call it romantic uh, possibility and and uh, thwarting and everything else, we've talked a little bit about you know how difficult or not difficult Ackerman is, but I think here we have the most straightforwardly, I, I guess like by mainstream standards, I think pleasurable film we've seen so far. Well, yeah, and we'll have time to we will talk about this more in depth when we get to these sections later on the podcast. But um, by the time we get to the '90s, Ackerman is in this period in her career where she's working much more in kind of um, concert with uh, mainstream modes of filmmaking. Like she's using mainstream modes of filmmaking, and again, she frequently and really only does that in such a way where she's often just sort of shifting things and undermining them a little bit. She never works in a kind of Hollywood mode just straightforwardly, even as she's often like calling up the signifiers of a kind of bigger entertaining cinema in the nineties. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that more later, but, um, but yeah, I mean, this film is, is, a, it is a very kind of like easy film to watch. It, it really does align with sort of more um, expected, more, uh, for lack of a better term, traditional or something, um, ways of sort of putting together a film. You have you have characters who are recognizable as characters, even though I think Ackerman does a little to kind of push them a little bit. So it's not just as simple as sort of like straightforward characters. They are, by all accounts, more straightforward than many of the other films we've watched on this podcast so far. Um, you have a fairly clear narrative. It takes place over one day and one night basically um and the characters particularly the lead who's played by a young woman named Cersei she's discredited as Cersei but her last name is Lethem um she's playing this very clearly Ackerman-esque figure they have a very similar physicality um and she's deeply engaging I mean and the and it's the writing is so great I mean we can talk about more about sort of what the different themes are that Ackerman's bringing up in the writing and, and this girl's engagement with the other characters but um but it is a really deeply enjoyable film. Um, I don't know, uh, Aaron. Had you seen it before this? Yeah, I. It was interesting though because like the first time I saw it, um, like I I liked it, but I I couldn't remember it very well. Like I guess like for whatever reason, it didn't strike me. And then when I watched it last week for this, like there were all these things that I'd forgotten, and I just I don't know something clicked about it this time like I completely forgotten the whole scene is it in her what relative's house is it is her it her cousin's, cousin? your cousin's? Yeah. okay yeah like that was just I don't know really remarkable to me um I think because I was remembering this film mostly through the Patricia White article and she pretty much only talks about like the last 10 minutes 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've noticed this this a funny split in the critical reaction to this film, too, where people tend to prioritize talking only about her relationship with the male character or prioritize talking only about her relationship with the female character. People don't actually tend to talk about the two of them together, which I think is sort of, again, very obvious when you look at all the films we've talked about this week, that Ackerman is very clearly interested in how those two things come together. It's not one or the other. It's the like, and, and just for people who haven't seen the film as a brief overview of what happens in this film, um, it's set in April 1960. So, of course, you have this sense of it happening right on the precipice of May 1968, this moment of a sort of revolutionary potential. But again, we're not in Paris. We're in Brussels. So we're just a little too far away, a little too early. Um, uh, and we follow this young woman uh, who's, am I forgetting the character's name? What's the character's name? Michelle. Michelle. There it is. Michelle. Um, yeah. Michelle has decided that she's sort of running away from home. She doesn't really run very far, though, because she's sort of hanging around the school where her uh, best friend also forgetting her name, <laughs> Pauline, um, Danielle. Wasn't it Daniela? Danielle. Danielle. There we go, Danielle. Sorry. Um, where, da no, I should have looked these up before, <laughs> where Danielle goes to school and um, so she sort of meets her there and then spends the majority of the day kind of wandering around Brussels where she meets a young man who has deserted from the army. Um, and I can't remember how much he sort of says about whether this is in direct protest or not, or whether it's just implied that this sort of out of disgust or protest with the um, colonialist kind of uh, military engagements of France and the Vietnam War and these kinds of things. And so he's left the army. They meet up very funnily. Um, she, the, the young woman sort of tells him that he can kiss her in a theater. And so they meet in this like very direct romantic way. And then they just sort of develop a kind of, for me, quite charming friendship that takes place over the middle section of the film. Um, they kind of shoplift some records together. They wander around a little, they kind of comment on like the nature of um, life in Brussels in this particular moment. And the character of um, Michelle kind of, you get a really clear sense of her as this, funny and again kind of acrimonish mix between a sort of lighthearted comic figure and a kind of very serious depressed figure I mean she sort of moves back and forth between these two modes and I think this kind of sense of like underneath this kind of lighter comic structure of the film there is are really kind of genuine questions about sort of political histories a sort of awareness of looking backwards at this moment of the kind of 1960s from the position of the current moment, all of these things, these sort of like darker, heavier questions uh, run underneath the kind of more charming cover of the film. Anyway, that I think lives in the kind of character itself. You have both of these things here. And then as the film progresses, uh, she may or may not sleep with the young man. I, it's pretty obvious to me that I think she does, but it's not actually shown. And uh, and then she goes back to meet up with her uh, friend and they go to her female friend and they go to a party. And the party sequence, I, I love the party sequence. I find it just one of the most kind of like directly emotional, like really... Yeah, I don't know, it, like intense uh, sequences that I've seen from Ackerman. Um, it's a heart-stopping sequence, and I think it's pretty. It's like the, the correct me. I, I'm I'm trying to go off memory here, but the much of the the Rond sequence or whatever is just the one take. Is it not? I believe it's all done in one. Or it take. certainly feels like it anyway. Yeah. Again, for people who haven't seen it or haven't seen it recently, this is. Cersei is dancing in a, a kind of circle with her friend, and it's this sort of like funny. Um, 
type of dance. I guess I've never seen this before, but like a type of dance sort of dating the 1960s. They're dancing in a circle on the outside while two girls dance in the center, a couple dances in the center. And each member of the couple gets to break off at a certain point and bring somebody else into the circle. And for at one point, the two girls are dancing in the center. Um, and then Cersei's left alone in the middle. And she looks around at everybody around the circle and then just decides she wants to dance with her friend again and brings the friend back in. And then when the sequence ends, uh, a young man cuts in and takes the friend away just as James Brown's um, It's a Man's 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 World kicks in, which is like one of the all-time great record dro- uh, needle drops. And Ackerman doesn't usually use pop music in her films. Like she uses music so consistently, but not pop music. It's so unusual to see it here. And it's done so well. You wish she could do it more. Yes, I the, I needed to... I'm- so glad you mentioned the music because uh the use of james brown and leonard cohen my my man (laughs) g absolute g leonard cohen a little can con a little can con in the ackerman universe yes exactly i i god i love the use of of i yeah i i also wish that she i mean this is another another great example of uh of the uh, the wonder of constraints and rules because i mean i doubt she would have done it if unless someone had specifically told her that she had to and uh, she ends up using that i think i think beautifully um i mean it's a man's world it it's it's almost i don't know i, I feel like it, it comes around to like it's so on the nose that i can't not like it it's such a like a cinematically pleasurable moment or whatever that and so heartbreaking that it even though it is like it's a rare moment of like potential on the noseness, but I'll, uh, I guess, how can I put it? I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> I won't call well, a foul on that one. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, and I didn't finish the end of the sequence there, but I suppose that, that she, when the song cuts in, we stay in like a tight close up, which again is not super usual in Ackerman's film to have a kind of long close up on a character's face. We stay in this tight close up on, um, Michelle's face as she watches presumably the, the girl dance with the young man. And I, you know, and in, I don't know, Patricia Wright reads that as a kind of distancing sequence to me, it's not distancing at all. To me, I feel really like this kind of very strong emotion from this young woman watching this relationship that she's not part of. And, and the rest of the film, um, she sort of reveals a little bit more to the friend that she, she, that it is too hard for her to participate in this kind of back and forth with the friend that she, she wants the friend to end up with someone so that she can sort of be at peace and kind of step outside of it. And she ends up introducing uh, her friend to the deserter guy, which happens off screen. And I I mean, the ending of the film, I just love it. I can come back to that. But, um, but I mean, in terms of kind of queer loneliness and these themes, I mean, I want to hear your thoughts about it, Erin, because it seems so connected to those kinds of themes. Yeah. Yeah, like it, the that shot that you were just describing, it made me like think about um I think like you said it in the last podcast, but that like that Ackerman a lot of the time will refuse reverse shots, but in this instance it doesn't seem like a kind of I don't know, nod to structuralism or something. It seems <laughs> like it's really grounded in like isolating her and making you feel that sense of like being outside of a scene um that's like really striking um and then it also like but at the same time um and I guess like this goes to like maybe like small issues I have with that is with that piece is that it's clear that there's some kind of longing that she has for her friend or some sort of attachment. Um, But like, I don't know if that means like she's going to be a lesbian or that she wants this to be like 
sexual in some precise way. And like, it makes me think about, I feel like I'm just like, quoting stuff from queer theory and it's really annoying Um, (laughs) but like the idea that like what is challenging and potentializing about queerness and like this is like comes from Foucault to some degree is not like the idea that your object choice will shift and that you'll have sex with like the same gender as opposed to a different one but the idea that intimacy can exist alongside friendship and alongside like even modes of estrangement like not knowing somebody in a completely anonymous sense and that like there's there's obviously this sense of pain there but there's also I don't know there's some sort of relational invention and that to me is like kind of the the bedrock of queerness is that friendship and other forms of bonding can exist simultaneously. I think what helps contribute to that, we have a very different, uh, if you compare it to the um, thinking back to Jutubilel, where you have this male figure enters and provides a certain type of input and then leaves uh, here. Like it's a very different sort of like, it's really interesting to me the way that, and this is this, we'll also talk about this when we talk about um, Les Rendezvous d'Ana later, but um, I, I, I just think that her, her characterization is uh, of, of this, of this figure is, is uh, very different. And in the sense that he actually seems like a, he's not, in other versions of, uh, if you do want to consider this as a as a you know a, a potential future coming out story or whatever, I think it's very difficult not to schematize people in these uh, in in their with in their relation to each other, and I think uh, she avoids that with with this character, um, and he does he does feel like a, like he appears to have just as much personhood as everyone else in the film, and yet simultaneously, so much of her interaction with him doesn't seem to be about him as much or like she she continually keeps bringing up her friend and how even though they're the ones interacting actually my friend is the one you should really be with wait till you meet my friend she's pretty wait till you meet my friend you're gonna get a way better bigger kick out of her than you're getting out of me and that's a, that her friend is is continuing to be a presence even when absent as we're always talking about and i i think that the reason that you don't get a lot of people potentially talking about uh, both re- both relationships when they're in the scholarship is is perhaps because the movie so doggedly uh, does not slot people in uh, in this in this neat clean way uh, that that goes along with whatever theory is being discussed. Yeah, indeed. I don't th- I don't think the film works at all as a kind of narrative of like. Uh, yeah. Yeah, again, the, the sort of traditional coming out narrative of a maybe kind of like overcoming of a heterosexual um, framework to then move into the kind of outre queer for it's like this film really doesn't work like that i mean she has this relationship with this young man and i think maybe as you were kind of implying earlier aaron with that sequence in the bedroom the the two of them break in they don't well they sort of break into uh, her cousin's house to give him a place to stay and they listen to this leonard cohen uh record that they that she'd stolen earlier and i I find the sequence almost as moving as as anything that happens in the final section i mean it's not specifically because Ackerman achieves this kind of like they dance together to the song and she achieves this kind of space of like, as you were saying, Aaron, exactly like intimacy that isn't predicated on the expectation of romance or sex. It isn't predicated on the idea of like, so this has to be a kind of determined relationship with the, with the male character. Instead, it's a kind of like, 
friendship, again, a sense of temporality, a sense of contingency, like this may not last. And but yet it's really touching and really like, I don't know, I, I just I, I think it's lovely. Well, and it also like there's a sequence earlier on where her and her friend go to like some kind of like club or something and they like make out with yes. two guys. Yeah. And it's like clear that it's like, OK, we're just doing this because that's what you do when you're in this space. Um, and then that feels more prescribed, but like that, the scene in the bedroom later, like it does feel like there's some kind of, um, I don't know, like at least curiosity. Like it's not like she's doing it out of obligation or she feels like pressured into the situation. And I'd forgotten about that. And I feel like it it renders the whole thing in a completely different register where it's not just about her like unrequited attachment to her straight friend, um, which I think is also a kind of like a fairly common narrative of like queer life. And it doesn't mean that, I don't know, that this means that she's bi and she's like attracted to both of them in the same way. Like maybe she isn't like there isn't. Um, yeah. That, that space is, is, um, left somewhat opaque still mm. that's also to, to my mind a great benefit of the medium length format that you can <laughs> leave that it, it it gives you so many reasons to leave so much out because you really only had so much room but I, I think it makes the it makes the unspoken very productive yeah i mean i think that idea of like the the unspoken productive being productive i think that runs throughout the film i mean i think there is so much here that is only hinted at, which I think is sort of why it's easy to see this film as a kind of um, straightforward or quote unquote minor film of Ackerman's because it doesn't deal very explicitly with a lot of the themes that she's sort of known for um, in, in her more kind of conceptual or challenging ways. But they're present throughout. I mean, I think so much of the, these things are sort of here just under the surface. Like there's one sequence where um, Michelle is talking to, it's Paul, right? Is Paul the friend? Yeah, she's talking to Paul. And um, I forget how they get to this point, but uh, at some point she says something like, oh, no, no, there are Nazis now, too. Right. I mean, it's like this idea of kind of like what gets what gets overwritten in sort of historical narratives. I mean, this kind of awareness of, of them as youth, her awareness, particularly of a kind of um, the sense of sort of horrors that seem to be existing on the outer edge of like what isn't seen in this sort of like, you know, French new wavy film of two young people walking around a city, like enjoying themselves. It's like, there's all these implications of things happening kind of in the background. And a lot of that runs again through the kind of themes of like freedom and control that, that are there in the film, right? The, the idea that she, um, wants to get away from her family. She wants to get away from school life because these are kind of spaces of like control and cloistering. So she wants to kind of like escape out into the space of like freedom, which is just sort of her alone in the city. I mean, and even that idea of like freedom being predicated on being alone is, I think is an important thing for Ackerman too. Um, but again, and this echoing in a sort of very explicit way, this sense of like the questions of a, of a young woman and her, burgeoning sense of self the coming of age all of these kinds of questions that mapping very clearly onto these like large scale political questions about may 68 about freedom and control at that level um i also love there's like i feel like there's a little touch here in the sense that it, people sort of forget this now but the may 68 protests um started in direct 
protest to uh, school policies. There was like this real sense that school particularly was stifling, that school was old fashioned, it was too controlling. And you get multiple references to schools particularly being too controlling in this film. They talk about it later with one of the Catholic school boys um, that the friend meets at a later part of the film. But um, anyway, I just think that Ackerman is doing a really lovely uh, thing here with sort of like seemingly kind of operating in this like entertaining kind of straightforward mode while still very much showing sort of fealty to her kind of longer, deeper concerns as a, as a filmmaker. Um, yeah. I have maybe one more thought about the end that I wanted to say, but did, but do other people have thoughts they want to go? go well, there? I just had a prompt that if I didn't bring it up, it was going to bother me. Um, what is it with how people wolf down food in these movies? <laughs> the food. <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> in all of them, I think just about all, except for in uh, La Paris where she just uh, drinks her pills, but <laughs> other than that people are just just absolutely wolfing down sandwiches and stuff or sugar in some cases <laughs> we've stumbled again simon into another weird connection with david lynch is like ackerman and lynch is like obsessed with like sugary foods it's like yes. both just this idea of stuffing your face with sugary food who knew um I, yeah the, the food thing i was trying to think about that too i feel like i'm still kind of trying to make up my mind about it but uh but aaron did the food thing make you think of anything um, I, I noticed that pattern too, and it's not just these films either. It's no, like it's not. Through a whole bunch of them. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but like, it's like it doesn't seem like people eat in these films like to I don't know, like in like a bodily function kind of way. It's like part of like social life, or like even just like I don't know, consumption for its own sake. Um. And that it, I don't know, it points to maybe like a different conception of time, I guess, like, not that, like, it's the instrumentalization thing, again, it's like, you don't do something just because it's like something that's required of you to like sustain your life. But that it like, I don't know, um, there's there's some kind of access there. I, I know it's not as... Uh... I know it's not as fireworksy as unsimulated lesbian sex, but I do. But I do always find it noteworthy just how plainly people in Ackerman films are obviously really, really eating that food because it's such a cliche of Hollywood style that no one's ever really eating because yeah. they're doing thirty takes and the food is very cold. <laughs> Anyways, just, a, just a, a, an, an, a, it's another sort of strangely taboo thing in films uh, made made plain in Ackerman's work. Yeah, Ackerman's films are filled with unsimulated eating. Exactly. <laughs> That's the full quote. There we go. There we go. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, the food stuff, it's funny. I feel like I, maybe I'll have more deep thoughts about it later on. I think as far as I've gotten with it now, it just, it, it puts me in mind of um, what Margulies talks about with the 70s films, which is just this kind of, these these strategies that Ackerman uses to kind of like make characters a little alien, to make them just seem a little off. It's like the fact that, as Aaron says, they eat too much too quickly. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't justified by an idea of need. Instead, it becomes a kind of like spectacularization of something that is so banal normally. And, and again, really tied into kind of like bodily pleasure, right? I mean, Ackerman, it, this actually does connect with uh, La Paresse is like Ackerman's sort of fascination with like, really kind of simple pleasures, like smoking a cigarette, another David Lynch crossover, by the way, smoking a cigarette, like, enjoying one's time it's like the kind of enjoyment for its own sake enjoyment that maybe can't be immediately wrapped back into a kind of like paradigm of um productivity or instrumentalization or anything it's just sort of there um and then okay so the one last thing i wanted to add about the the ending of the film 
before we wrap up uh was what was i gonna say here oh was a reading like I, I just because i think it's worth asking you guys how you think about this reading of the film is that as you get to the end people have sort of noted that and i think amy tobin even in like an early review for the village voice picks this up too is the idea that maybe what this film is as much about in the autobiographical sense is um yeah, the, the movement, you know, not from heterosexuality to homosexuality or something like that, but the movement from thinking about relationality in in one kind of way, you know, based on like spending time with other people or sexual encounters or something into a kind of acceptance of a position outside of, of that kind of relationality. Maybe here signaled by the character moving into a position of like authorial control because the final section of the film, the last sequence of the film is her setting up the two friends, right. And kind of sending them off on their own story where she's not part of that story, but she's in control of the story. Right. So people have made connections with this being sort of Ackerman's nod to her own movement into the position of director, into the position of, yeah, controller of the narrative. But then, of course, that's that's um, built on the idea of her being excluded from being within the kind of story that's neat and tidy and um, controlled like that, which I, I find quite moving. I mean, I think that makes sense to me, especially because I think I love the way that she designs the last shot of the film, because so much of this film, and we haven't talked about this so much, but so much of the film is kind of shot differently than Ackerman shoots many of her films. A little more handheld, a little freer. Of course, the compositions are still beautiful, but it's like a little more freer than some of her um, more famous work. But then in that last shot, you get this beautiful kind of static shot of a, a long, it's like a landscape, and it has this very clear vanishing point in the middle as the, with the lines pointing towards the, the, the vanishing point at the back, and the girls are walking up. And then uh, Michelle passes her friend off in one corner and sort of walks back towards the vanishing point. And, you know, and this idea of the kind of like, whatever their relationship is, whether, and I think Aaron, you're right to point out that it isn't at no point does the film necessarily indicate that it should be read as this explicitly lesbian relationship or anything like that. But whatever this relationship is that Michelle desires with her, that she wants, it only exists like at the vanishing point, right? It only exists from a distance. It only exists seen from a very particular angle. It's ephemeral. It's not meant to last. And I find it deeply melancholic. Like I find that ending really melancholic and I, you know, whether that's the autobiographical reading or not, I don't know, but I love it. It's beautiful. There's another shot earlier in the film that I think communicates that just as beautifully where um, she's going to meet Danielle at school. Like Danielle's getting out of school and she goes to intercept her. And then when they part ways, the camera follows Danielle to the gate. And then because Danielle's like headed out in the distance but also back in the general direction of our protagonist. So we rejoin her with Danielle sort of fading out into the distance. Ah, oh, that is a wonderful shot. Man, Ackerman doesn't get enough credit for her like blocking, but like bodies in space. She is the master of bodies in space. Everyone's talking about bodies in spaces. Ackerman was the best at bodies in spaces. <laughs> It's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, Aaron, Ed, had you kind of come across that sort of authorial reading at the end, like the narrative of moving into the position of authorship? Yeah, well, and like the title seems to cue in that direction, even like, is it, is Kunstler Roman the one that's like, the person growing into being an artist? And yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like, that there's, there's some, like, what kind of struck me about that, like, retrospective quality, which I guess is baked into the premise of this series, is that, like, I don't know if it was intentional or not, um, but there's kind of, like, a noticeable lack of period detail a lot of the time. I was time. just going to say, mm -hmm. yes, exactly. <laughs> and, I'm glad someone mentioned it. Yeah. And... 
and so the, the there seems to be this sort of I don't know yeah like floating ethereal presentness to it at the same time that it's like backward looking um so it doesn't seem to be like nostalgic per se or like obsessed with like an amber version of whatever 1968 was and like the memorialization of like the grand historical event like there's something like so um yeah uh concerned with the everyday and maybe how the past like fades into the contemporary moment um and that there's a there's a longing there as well and, and a lack of a kind of lack of like a, an unfinished quality to the yes. past right that the past isn't sort of um cordoned off and put as this kind of like whole thing that we that we only have access to via representations that I mean I think Ackerman's really uninterested in that I think you're right it's like for her it's much more about a sort of mode of um finding the way the past lives in the present and she and she does this in her documentaries as well um and we can talk about that more in a future episode but the um yeah, films like uh, Dest, where it's sort of looking at histories of kind of the Holocaust histories of, of um, communist life in the remnants that exist in the contemporary moment. And I think you have that here, where there's this very clear play between, yeah, what it means to think about the 60s, but explicitly from the vantage of the 1990s, right? Like that those two things are tied there. And there's no pretense that like, oh, yes, this is a narrative about somebody who existed once upon a time. It feels very current, very present, even though it was made in the 90s. Just from a more superficial standpoint, which is the standpoint I love to speak from. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I just I think that ha the fact that they go to a music store and you can kind of see that there's like CDs in the CDs, racks or whatever, yeah. it, it kind of just adds like a certain punk rock well, I mean, obviously, 68 would be considerably before punk rock, but it, there, there is sort of a countercultural uh, punch to just not giving a fuck about what like yeah, about <laughs> making, you know, we've only got so much money, folks. We're not going to we're not going to change the music store for you. Um, also, in terms of noticing superficial things um, and also being an ex DJ and all those things. Uh, shout out to Ackerman for the fact that uh, Suzanne is, in fact, the first song on Songs of Leonard Cohen. So oh, wow. uh, when he when he puts the needle on that record, uh, the the right song plays, which you know I appreciate that because it takes me out of the scene if I think oh he had to go to he had to put the needle right right on track four on on side B <laughs> to do that so that's that it's a cinema sin right there <laughs> anyway in the middle of that sequence he goes to take a shower. And that's not like a super long song. It's like three and a half <laughs> no, <it's> minutes. <laughs> and so like, I wonder if there's, I don't know. I'd have to like go back and see it again. Like if there's some kind of shift from like uh, diegetic to non-diegetic in the song, they clearly like they do play it on the record, but then it like lasts into this like next moment in some kind of ghostly way. Uh, that's a Dogma 95 fail, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who needs Dogma 95 when you have Chantal Ackerman? Indeed. Um, <laughs> no, I had kind of noticed that as well, like the odd temporality with the shower, like being very short. Um, but, you know, again, it's like Ackerman's fun thing where she kind of like will, not like someone taking a shower is eventful, but it just put me in mind of the fact of like the, uh, the fact that you, you cut out the sex scene, right? It's like things that you would sort of expect the temporalities to present are are elided here. And then other things that you would not expect are kind of stretched out or presented at length. But um, 
Yeah. Um, oh man, we could keep talking about this forever. I think the last, just the last thing I wanted to mention too, because I didn't get a chance to respond to it earlier when it came up was the question of the, uh, the funding models for this, because Aaron, you brought up the fact that, that Patricia White notices the, the notion of these, um, the idea of kind of minor work or like underfunded work. And I mean, I think this is a really important question to think about with Ackerman and we should keep talking about it as we go forward is this idea that, I don't know, like Patricia in the article mentions that, that for her, the fact that so much of Ackerman's um, uh, oeuvre that she kind of, the, the films that she made in the decades after the seventies, she moves very much back and forth between making like a handful of features in each of those decades, but then frequently really her output is funded by, as Simon has pointed out, these kind of like omnibus films that are often funded by European television channels. Like there is this kind of like arts funding model in Europe that tends to fund kind of smaller works, more unusual works that just simply doesn't exist in the United States, especially in Canada, maybe to a lesser degree, but so Ackerman is able to kind of like continue making these films at a kind of smaller scale throughout her career in a way that a lot of other, um, you know, female filmmakers, et cetera, aren't able to do because she has access to this sort of funding. And I was actually, it was interesting to see um, Patricia White in that article kind of equate this actually with a sort of negative framework of women often being uh, women filmmakers often being sidelined into the position of only being able to direct films at the level of the televisual or the short film or like the training film or the industrial film, et cetera, and not being able to work at the level of the feature film. And I find uh, to me that that is maybe actually a bit of a projection from the vantage of the kind of like Hollywood central mode to like bemoan the idea that one isn't always getting to work in the, at the fiction level, working at this kind of like high directorial auteur level. Because for me, I'm not sure Ackerman made that kind of distinction between the value of working at the feature and the value of working at the short. I, I'm not sure that that's the case. Certainly the shorts haven't been restored as much and are harder to see, which is really unfortunate. But yeah, I don't know. I, what did you guys think about that? Uh, in terms of accessibility, I wanted to briefly mention, if anyone is looking to watch these films, uh, the... <laughs> Uh, the, well, and I, I always, I hesitate to talk about this stuff much because, you know, uh, it may not be timeless. I would just say that, uh, some of these films are hosted in interesting places if you start Googling around and that's all I'm, that's all I'm going to say. But, um, yeah, the, you never get the sense watching uh, any of her shorts, any of her uh, made for television, uh, work that's, that it's in any way begrudging or that she's, uh, that she's uh, working in, in, in a, in a, it feels like she's working in a different or lesser mode or whatever. I mean. Uh, you you get the feeling of someone who just who enjoyed making films or got something out of making films was uh, in a position where she wanted to keep doing it and got to keep doing it. Um, it's I don't think there was as much. Uh, I, I'd be I'd be curious to know like how many how much of the infrastructure that she uh, sort of uh, worked through still exists. Like I feel like it's been a I feel like I haven't seen people suggesting and this is what I was talking about earlier. I haven't seen any. Uh, sort of amb the, an ambitious series like the one uh, that Ackerman was working in with like the caliber of filmmakers that she was working alongside all making medium length films. I mean, Andre Tequinet and Claire Denis. And I mean, it's, it's a wild, wild. The, the, the series that she made portrait for, um, which is called a, uh, uh... Tous les garçons et les filles, et les filles de leur âge, um, from the Francoise Hardy song. Uh, I mean, that felt like the series that there's incredible films in that series. I mean, the, yeah, Claire Denis made that film, US Go Home. Um, there's another film I've never seen, which I hear is great, though, called Travolta and Me by another female filmmaker named Patricia Mazui, I think. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, this is incredible. This is why I just wanted to sort of give a shout out to like these funding models because I think they really did sort of make this kind of like, 
avant-garde art cinema career for somebody like Ackerman possible in a way that they wouldn't have been elsewhere. And, and I should say, too, I, I completely agree with um, White's kind of complaint that that still there has long been a kind of um, lack of appropriate distribution and exhibition for people working in the kind of like short film or the sort of more unusual realm. Like, of course, that's true. It remains true. So, of course, I get that complaint. But I just wanted to say that I'm not sure that Ackerman only ever wanted to be working at the feature level. I think she wanted to do both. Maybe this is just a needless idle speculation on my part, but um, watching and thinking about the fact that some of the other films in the series were in fact expanded and released as features like the SAS film, there's an alternate universe where this does get slightly expanded into like an 80 or 90 minute feature. And I think it could have been a breakthrough for her commercially because it is quite accessible. And I think could have really, I mean, whether it would have blended in commercially in the era of 1993 or not is another question, but um, I don't know. There's sort of an unexplored uh, potential for a breakthrough there that never manifested yeah her her attempts to sort of work at the hollywood level that we'll talk about later are are more hit or miss and she she really wanted ackerman always really wanted to work in the kind of large-scale entertainment like she really did want to do both she didn't only want to work in the kind of avant-garde more obscure side of things she wanted to work in this sort of accessible fun having a large crowd style of filmmaking too and so it's interesting that this film i think you're right i mean i hadn't thought about it that way but this film maybe succeeds at that in a way that some of her other large-scale films don't. And so it's interesting to think about. One thing I was thinking about is, like, on the one hand, I would love to see, like, a fully restored version of Portrait of a Young Girl. But on the other, like, the way that it exists now, um, I don't know if it's, like, some VHS rip or, like, what it is, but, like, it resonates with the like emotion and the um, sort of like aesthetic qualities of the film. Um, I don't know. The, like th- there's a couple of, of films where I have that like, relationship to it, where the fact that it is kind of like degraded or like not entirely like a pristine image works with what the film is i don't know like yeah. superstars coming to mind for instance or <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> and it's like yeah i would like to see it like where i can actually see what's going on um the the copy of portrait of a young girl is like not quite that like um yeah. sketchy my, but my favorite <laughs> although jfm kind of is jfm you can kind of it's like pretty that's yeah. a pretty low-grade copy of that film yeah. for sure. um <laughs> the my favorite thing about the vhs rip or whatever it is of, of portrait is that it opens with the sort of I, I guess the like the series itself has its own oh, set yeah. of credits that happened yeah. before the the quite austere silent Ackerman credits. It's like this I don't know this you get this this, this musical interlude. Get something similar, I think, in the uh, Seven Women, Seven Sins film, which I've, had, I've had, if I had had more time, I wanted to watch the entire film. I ran out of time to do that. But like, yeah, I wanted the- to do that too, uh, just to see how it played in sequence. But uh, it'll have to wait for another time. Speaking of waiting for another time, uh, we've hit uh, the end of our of our Ackerman journey uh, this month. Uh, is any any burning comments anyone must make before we wrap up? Uh, should we talk about what we're going to talk about next month? Yes. Me, I can pull that up here. Yes. So uh, it's, a, it's a, a simpler roll call next month. Uh, we are talking about Letters Home 
and news from home. We uh, will also probably drop a mention of uh, hanging out Yonkers in the mix there as well. Thank you so much to Aaron for coming on and bringing uh, bringing our queer theory expertise. It was great to have somebody on who's more uh, more up to date on that kind of work. So I was glad to to get a sense of that because I feel like there's like a long tradition of people writing about Ackerman, both from the feminist and queer angle. But a lot of that work really dates from a kind of earlier period in that scholarship. And so I really I was excited to have a chance to think about it from a more kind of contemporary angle, these kind of questions. And this was awesome. So thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This was so much fun. <laughs> And thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, we'll be back in about a month's time. Have a, have a good one, folks. know how to sign off things that exist on the internet forever have a good one <laughs> have a good one what does that mean? Look at what? have a good millennium <laughs>